Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will... Reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Matthew 16 moves from a conflict by the enemies of Christ in verses 1 through 5 to confusion over the things physical and spiritual in verses 6 through 16. So it moves from conflict to confusion. And now we had Peter's confession in verses 13 through 20. And Jesus, remember, is the Christ. He's the son of the living God in verses 13 through 20. And to the Lord Jesus' declaration, there comes a crucifixion, a cross, And then Peter's correction in verses 21 through 28. Jesus is going to openly announce his imminent arrest, his suffering, his death, his resurrection in verse 21. And the disciples are shocked. They're stunned. And Peter attempts to intervene to persuade Jesus to resist the cross and reject the cross. And it results in a stunning rebuke to Peter in verses 22 through 23. Peter finds himself being used as a tool of Satan, serving as a stumbling block in Christ's necessary path to Calvary and his obedience to the Father. Peter will go from helper in verses 13 through 20 to satanic hinderer in verses 22 and 23. The followers of Jesus have faced challenges in each and every generation and each and every century. In the first century, the challenge to the church was Gnosticism. This was the belief that secret knowledge was necessary in order to have a right relationship with God. In the second century, the challenge was paganism as they began to hold on to the old gods and goddesses of the Greek and the Roman Empire. Paganism required passion and devotion. 
But what Gnosticism and paganism had in common is that neither one of them required a cross. Fast forward to the 19th and 20th centuries. And the challenge became rationalism and philosophical naturalism, political Marxism and evolution. And what all of that means is that the world began to introduce the idea that there really is no such thing as God. And because there's no such thing as God, there's no such thing as sin. In each and every generation, there's an attempt. Sometimes... To keep God, but to make sacrifice go away. In the late 20th century, mysticism surged in fashion. And even the church split over this issue of the supernatural. In the United States and in part of the rest of the world, Christians and Christianity are abandoning the gospel and the cross for a new gospel But it really isn't a gospel at all. It's the gospel of self. It's the gospel of power politics and power evangelism and power church growth and and the power of God manifested in signs and wonders and miracles. And for some, the gospel consists in manipulating God to get what you want instead of denying self. Gone, for the most part, is the preaching of the cross. This passage in Matthew deals a death blow to the so-called self-gospels. The the self-gospels are those teachers and teachings that elevate the self, promote self-esteem, self-love, self-indulgence, self-preservation. And they literally run opposite to the words of Jesus. In this passage of scripture, it is impossible to misunderstand the words of Jesus. The cross will kill the hopeless theology of self-exaltation. The cross will kill any chance that you can have a right relationship with God apart from the cross. Apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. And so the Bible and Jesus is going to cause the fog to lift. And he's going to remind us that he must die for sin. Not just in a theological sense, but for your sin. For my sin. For our rebellion. And so in verse 21, it is a promise. Look what it says. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes. And be killed. And be raised on the third day. That phrase, from that time will mark a turning point in this gospel as a whole. In chapter 4, verse 17, it signaled the announcement of the kingdom. Now, from this time forward, the emphasis will be on Christ's suffering, Christ's death, and his resurrection. For the first time, Jesus is plainly and simply going to reveal God's plan For the necessity of redemption by means of a cross. 
There have been several hints, by the way, in Mark chapter 2, verse 20, in John chapter 2, verse 19, in John chapter 3, he speaks of uh, that, that, he, that he must be lifted up in order to draw all people to himself. But Jesus is now going to give a five-fold revelation of the cross. W.H. Griffith Thomas provides this simple outline in this one little verse. Number one, it's place. He's got to go to Jerusalem. Number two, it's experience. He has to suffer many things. Number three, it's source. The chief priests, the elders, the scribes. It's extent. He will be killed. It's results. He will be raised on the third day. And the text says Jesus must go. You'll remember in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, for he has put him to grief. And this was one of the biggest challenges of all. You mean this is what God wanted? This is exactly what God wanted. You mean it was God's will for his son to die? That's exactly what it means. But Peter will resist the cross. Look at verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter found the statement of Jesus astonishing and unwelcome, just like some of you. Just like some of you. Some of you in your heart are still resisting what Jesus has said. Peter, it says, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Literally, Peter's words seem to have been, have pity on thyself, spare thyself. This must not be permitted. And what you need to come to grips with is Peter rejects Jesus' interpretation of a suffering Messiah. He isn't the only one. There's lots of people who reject a suffering Messiah. Do you understand what Peter's saying? Find some other way. Let's find a different way. Now, most of us understand we're even willing to give Peter at least some credit. We don't want pain and suffering to mark the lives of the ones we love. And in moments of honesty and clarity, we don't want that for ourselves. Let's give Peter the benefit just for a moment. This talk of Jesus, of going to Jerusalem, suffering and dying, in Peter's mind, he isn't hearing about a resurrection. He's thinking about an end to a friendship, end of fellowship, end of love, end of companionship. Do you understand what Peter is doing? He's basically saying, Jesus, if you're right about this, then that means everything between us changes. Peter doesn't seem to be able to hear the part about being raised from the dead, or if he hears this part, he is thinking, that's crazy talk. People don't come back to life. When you're dead, you're dead. 
And for the people who think that this is some sort of primitive superstition of people from a long time ago who don't know better, you would be sadly mistaken because in their generation, when their mothers and their fathers and their brothers and their sisters died, they stayed dead. And so, in the minds of many, death marks the end of our life. But Jesus knew that his death would mark the beginning of life for Peter, for me. And I hope and pray for you as well. Sometimes the source of temptation, that is to resist God's will and to resist God, can come from the people that we love the most. You see, you might have someone in your family, you might have someone in your life who resists the plan of God, who resists the will of God. They don't want you to go to church or they want you to do anything other than go to church. It annoys them when you read the Bible. It annoys them when you say stuff like, you know what, I think there's a real God and and that he loves us and that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. And all of this sounds crazy to them. And so when you begin to discover God's will for your life and plan for your life and purpose for your life, there are going to be people who are going to resist you in that plan and in that purpose. Are there people who think they're trying to protect you by telling you that you should walk away from God and that you should walk away from his promises and you should walk away from his love You see, the cross makes people uncomfortable. Almost certainly it's going to make some of you uncomfortable before this message is over with. For many people, they wonder, why can't our good deeds just outweigh our bad deeds? Why can't I be a good person? And why can't that be enough? And the right answer to that question is, well, first of all, Even our good deeds and our best deeds are defective from God's perspective. The Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's none who does good. No, not one. God never reveals a single time ever in the Bible, your good works sufficeth. There's no passage in any part of the Bible that comes up with that conclusion. The Lord Jesus, God has chosen the Lord Jesus as the exclusive plan of salvation. Our our hope, just like the song says, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Salvation can come only by blotting out the record of your sin. Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 13, and you who were dead in trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us, its legal demand. You see, one of the things that people often forget 
is that God is the one who has been offended. Our rebellion and disobedience has offended him. And that he is the one who has to be satisfied. He is the one who has to be pleased. And in verse 23, look what it says. But he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The rebuke is strong and powerful. Can you imagine you going up to Jesus and Jesus saying, Get behind me, Satan. You go, wait. Where's the gentle Jesus, meek and mild? Look upon this little child. I had no idea that you were going to be this rough with me. And by the way, if you're going to be this rough with me, well, guess what? I'm not going to go to church and I'm not going to sit through this service. I get it. The words of Peter are an offense, he says, to him. A stumbling block. Now wait, just a few minutes earlier, you were a pebble. And now you're a pebble in my shoe. In the Lord's rebuke, we discover that Peter's suggestion has more in common with Satan's temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. In what sense? Remember, remember, remember the theme of the book. Jesus is the king. He is the king by virtue of his birth. He is the king by virtue of prophecy. He is the king by every single standard that you can measure his kingdom. And so Satan invites Jesus to be the king absent a cross, without a, a cross. Remember what Satan said, look, you can be the king. All you have to do is bow to me. Satan is permitted by God to have some limited control of this kingdom, which is witnessed by the current election cycle. But Jesus must suffer and die to obtain the kingdom. Satan was attempting to cause Christ to steer clear of the cross. One translation reads, you are not mindful of the things of God or you speak like a man and not like God. So what's Peter's problem? Peter's problem is the same mistake that millions of people all over the planet Earth make. They are saying, we have to be willing to say anything, do anything. We will say anything and we will do anything to escape suffering, to escape death, to escape the idea of submitting to God in any way. Some people would rather be ruined than be saved. And so Peter doesn't have the mind of God on the matter. So where do we find the mind of God on the matter? In the word of God. And through the son of God. Sometimes friends and family will say, find another path. Take another way. 
Do something other than what this Bible says. Do something other than what Jesus requires. Most people aren't so brazen as to say, throw away your Bible. Turn your back on God. But it has the net effect. Every single person who says, you can't believe everything that the Bible says. Then what you need to be able to say is, okay, so help me understand, which are the parts of the Bible that I should ignore and pretend doesn't exist? You know, the parts about you denying yourself, the parts about you turning uh, away from, from self and pleasure and the pursuit of personal happiness. Until Peter, Peter was born again and filled with God's Holy Spirit, he had a tendency to argue with God and with Jesus, just like some of you. Well, God, what about this? And God, what about that? And what about this? And what about that? I get that. I, no one was more egregiously committed to arguing than me. In law school, you're taught, if the facts are in your favor, argue the facts. If the law is in your favor, argue the law. If neither the facts nor the law are in your favor, just argue. <laughs> and if the facts aren't in your favor, or the law isn't in your favor, Peter had enough faith to confess that Jesus was the Christ, that he was the son of the living God. But he didn't have enough faith to believe that he was right about suffering and dying. Of course Satan agreed with Peter's words. Because again, he will use the same approach to tempt Jesus. If Jesus doesn't suffer and die, Peter and all the other disciples will remain in their sin forever. I will remain in my sin forever. You will remain in your sin forever. This is why this calls for such a strong rebuke. Because this is one thing that you can't get wrong. The king insists on the cross. Look what it says in verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow me. In Mark's companion gospel, in chapter 8, verse 34, it reads this way. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The reason why I include Mark's in intimate detail is because Jesus is basically saying, I'm not asking you to simply walk away from yourself. I'm asking you to come to me. The Lord Jesus calls people to himself. And a disciple is a disciplined learner. If you want to learn a trade, some trades take a long time to learn. I'm not an electrician by any stretch of the imagination, and the only thing I know about electricity is that you should respect it. But every electrician has to, to learn that lesson. 
If you want to play an instrument, if you want to learn a language, if you want to become skilled at a sport, it's going to require a disciplined commitment to go in a particular direction. Discipleship requires desire and dedication and direction and sacrifice or denial. Does this passage apply only to those disciples or do they apply to everyone in every age. Look what the text itself says. If anyone, are you someone? If anyone desires to come after me. The key word is desire, by the way. A desire has to be present. If anyone desires to come after me, guess what? For the person who says, I have no desire whatsoever. I don't want to follow Jesus. The person who has no desire to follow Jesus won't. The person who says, I have no desire to follow Jesus. I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to read my Bible. This is not who I am. This is not who I want to be. I have no desire whatsoever. If you have no desire to come after him, you won't. If you don't have any desire to have fellowship with him, you won't. Discipleship may begin with recognition and confession of Jesus, but it doesn't end there. And so for the person who says, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go to hell. I want to have all my sins forgiven, but I don't want to love him. I don't want to follow him. I don't want to serve him. Jesus is speaking to the issue of motivation and attitude and mindset. And since the invitation to, is to anyone, everyone is invited, not everyone will, the conditions for discipleship apply. Number one, a desire for self-denial. Number two, a willingness to pick up the instrument of death. Number three, a willingness to follow. And guess what the disciple does? The disciple risks everything on the reality that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. You've all taken risks. You've taken a risk in the hopes that you might get something or have something. The disciple is taking the risk that Jesus is everything that he claims to be. And so Jesus leaves nothing to the imagination. He will spell out exactly what he expects and what you may not know and what you may not have taken into consideration is that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus will expect from you exactly what his father expects from him. I want to let that sink in for just a moment. The father is going to ask Jesus to deny himself. The father is going to ask Jesus to pick up the instrument of his death. The father is going to ask Jesus to willingly, personally, voluntarily obey him. I had a PE coach in high school that I'll never forget. His name was Lou Zipkovich. His claim to fame, he was the first male centerfold model for Playgirl magazine. 
He was six foot six, built like a cross between Sylvester Stallone and um, who's a bodybuilder? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, picture Arnold meets Sylvester at six foot six. My PE coach would go, I'll never ask you to do anything that I myself am incapable of doing. If he asked us to run, he would run. If he asked us to do push-ups, he would do push-ups. He was so funny, the girls would come around and he would get up on the, on the chin-up bars and go, 101, 102, 103. He was, for the most part, show, but he had a little go in him. What happens to the person who desires to follow Jesus but fails to meet his expectations? Not all disciples will remain followers. Self-denial means more than just simply depriving yourself of something. It it doesn't mean, okay, I'm going to give up this girlfriend. I'm going to give up this boyfriend. I'm going to give up this dream. I'm going to surrender this. I'm going to surrender that. I'm going to give up booze. I'm going to give up alcohol. I'm going to give up drugs. I'm going to give up. I'm going to give up. I'm going to give up. It's more. It's way more than that. Self-denial is difficult, but in a very real sense, self-denial isn't Jesus insisting that you give stuff up. Self-denial literally means turning from yourself. It means turning from yourself, but you will never, ever, you'll never do it. You will never turn from yourself. Unless there is a powerful, powerful person that you can turn to. And that's why we turn to Christ. We identify with Jesus in his suffering and his death. We desire obedience to his commands. We abandon our desires for self-enrichment to pursue Christ's agenda. Jesus is asking the disciples to disown all rights and claims to their lives and to themselves. We are in effect transferring the title deed of our life to the Lordship of Christ. You're no longer the Lord of your life. You're no longer the decision maker in your life simply. To the best of your ability, Jesus becomes the decision maker. People generally value their ability to choose or choose otherwise. People value their freedom. People want freedom and they want the ability to exercise choice. Jesus is in effect saying you disavow all claims to yourself. The word deny has the same meaning as disavow. By the way, Peter will later deny disavow Jesus. Peter would say, I don't know who he is. Peter will swear, I don't know him. He has no claim over my life. I don't know him. He has no claim over my life. That's denial. For the person to deny themselves, they have to say, Whatever rights I used to have, I no longer have. Jesus has, I have 
I have transferred my right to Jesus. So taking up your cross reinforces and strengthens self-denial. In what way? You go public. In what way? There were not private crucifixions in the first century in the Roman Empire. You didn't have to have a special meeting. You didn't, get a thing, you didn't get a scroll in the mail that says, hey, guess what? There's going to be a secret crucifixion on Thursday morning in a faraway place. Crucifixions were always public and they were always dramatic. I don't know why I keep living in high school, but my, my professor, I had a professor named Brimhall who... He was so, no, it was Bender, Mr. Bender. He was the history teacher. He would basically say, hey, how many of you, if you knew that Gino Geraci was going to be hung at dawn in back of Lauterburgers would show up, everybody in the class raised their hand. Yeah, oh, it's right, oh. Because I think at least one person might have went, oh. And Bender said, no, it's not anything against you personally, Geraci. It's just that they don't see hangings very often. Curiosity will bring them to a place where they'll go watch you hang. This was public. This was always public. And so guess what? When you deny yourself, you pick up your cross. You pick up the instrument of your death. You're also going public. For many people who say, you know, my, my faith is a very private thing. It's a, just a very personal and it's a very private thing with me. Crossbearing and discipleship was always public. And every person who woke up in whatever morning that they happened to wake up, and it was the day that they were going to die, it was a public march. If you picked up your cross, it didn't mean that you were going to the Bronco game. It didn't mean that you were going to get to go play golf. It didn't mean that you get to do whatever it is that you get to do. There was only one thing, there was only one thing that would happen before the day was over. You were going to be placed on that cross and you can't commit suicide on a cross. Being on a cross always requires help. Somebody has to place you there. If you don't believe me, I dare you to try. And then we ignore the most obvious part of the text. It's when you do this, you believe something about Jesus. You believe something about Jesus that is so powerful and real. You believe that he is more real than death itself. And so when Jesus said that he had to go to Jerusalem, that he had to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, that he would be killed, only the most dull person, only the most willfully ignorant person could escape what Jesus is saying. Suffering awaits me, ridicule awaits me, arrest awaits me, humiliation awaits me, a cross awaits me. And remember, a cross isn't just any kind of, of execution, it's a criminal's cross, it's a thing of scorn, it's a curse. In the greatest sense of the, of the word, this is the worst way that you could possibly die, but can we read those words and expect only a cross for Jesus and no cross for ourselves. 
you might think like a coward. Well, I thought Jesus suffered so I wouldn't have to. Well, in one sense, that's true. Jesus dies on the cross for payment of sin. You will never be able to pay for your sin. The cross of Calvary satisfies God in every way concerning the debt that you owe. Jesus never promised his disciples a safe life, a painless life, or a life absent a cross. He he promised a cross. It reminds me of a story of a man in Atlanta, Georgia. He built this massive church and he goes, check this out. He said, you see that cross? Do you see it? The church paid $20,000 for that cross. And the man said, I can remember when you could get one for free. So when Jesus says, pick up your cross, everyone knew that it was an instrument of death. And he says, follow me. And I dare you to just ask the most basic question of the text. Follow me. Where are you going? Where are you going? He's already revealed it. I'm going to Jerusalem. What awaits you? Suffering. What's going to be the source of your suffering? The elders, the chief priests, the scribes. How bad is it going to be? How bad is it going to be? I'm going to die. And then what happens? I'm going to rise on the third day. You see, if you follow him, the journey doesn't end at the cross. It may begin at the cross, but it will never end at the cross. Where will your journey take you? If you are following Jesus, your journey is going to eventually take you to heaven to be with God forever. There's a story of a plantation slave in the Old South who was always happy. He was always singing. And no matter what happened to him, his joy was infectious. It was contagious and abounding. And one day his master said to them, what is it that makes you so happy? And the slave replied, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He's forgiven my sin. He's put a song in my heart. Well, how do I get what you have, the master said. The slave said, go on, put on your Sunday best suit and come down here and work in the mud with me. Come and work in the mud and you can have it. And the owner said, I would never do that. And he rode off in a huff. Some weeks later, the master came back again and asked the same question, and the slave gave the same answer. A few weeks later, he comes a third time, and he says, now be straight with me. What do I have to do to have what you have? And the slave owner, the the slave said, just what I told you the other times. And in desperation, the slave owner said, I'll do it. And then the slave said, now you don't have to. He said, you just had to be willing to do it. You had to be willing to do it. You see, you may not ever 
have to take up a physical cross. Your flesh may never cruelly be tied or brutally broken. Your flesh may never be stripped. You may never have a single thing done to you. But you have to be willing. And we have to be careful. Because Jesus is the Lord. He determines what it means or doesn't mean to be his disciple. When the Lord Jesus calls a person and saves a person, he does it personally and practically. And he does it according to his will. But remember our text. He said, whoever desires to come after me, that person has to be willing to surrender themselves completely to Jesus. They have to identify with his suffering and death. And the person has to follow Jesus. In obedience, Lewis Evely writes, quote, we all know that a Christian has to bear the cross. In theory, we're all prepared to accept one, but you will no doubt have noticed that the cross that comes our way is never the right one. The cross we bear, our health, our face, our circumstance, our family, our stupid job, our failure, or our stupid success always seems to us to be intolerable, mean, humiliating, harmful. Desperately, we call for another cross made for our size, a cross which will be bearable, spiritual, elevating, beneficial to ourselves and to others. But that may not be the cross that you get. A.W. Tozer rightly said, we must do something about the cross. And only one of two things will do. We run from it or die on it. And he's exactly right. And so no wonder Jesus says, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is going to set a series of, of paradoxes. Winners are losers. The way up is the way down. You find your life, you lose it. You lose your life, you find it. You're known yet unknown. You die, but you possess life. You are sorrowful, but you have rejoicing. You are poor, but you're rich. You have nothing and you have everything. You are strong, but you are weak. You have nothing and you have everything. This is a part of the person when he says, whoever desires to save his Life. Here the word life carries with it the idea of soul and spirit. By the way, it's the Greek word suke, which seems to be that part of the person that hopes and dreams and desires. This is the part of you that says, this is who I am and this is what I want and these are my goals. Believers are promised fullness of life. The unbeliever pursues life, but in the end, life is absent joy and purpose. So what is Jesus saying? Whoever lives only for themselves, who, who has the me first mentality. For the person who says, it's about me, it's about me, uh, it's a, I'm self-driven, self-consumed, self-absorbed. Whoever seeks the approval of this world can't receive the approval of God. That's what he's saying. And by the way, what are the odds that the disciples will in fact lose their life? 11 out of 12. 
And the one that doesn't lose his life will be boiled in oil by Domitian, where he is miraculously delivered for reasons unknown to us other than the fact that when he's miraculously delivered, he's banished to the island of Patmos, where he will write the book of Revelation that's the last volume. So what are the odds that many will experience pain, suffering, sacrifice if you embark on a journey will you be protected from pain will you be preserved at all costs and for the person who cares only about preservation for the person who only cares about what they have a little bit of them begins to die emotionally and then you begin to die spiritually And in verse 26, it says, For what profit is it for a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is the benefit if you have financial control, economic control, political control, social control, physical control? What if you could control all of this world and all of its systems? There's been a handful of people in the history of humanity who quite literally had it all. Alexander the Great conquers the then known world at the age of 33 and dies a drunk in Babylon. Julius Caesar clearly had the world at his feet and he's assassinated on the very steps of the Roman Senate. The world's richest man, Bill Gates, and the second richest man in the world, I guess it's now the... uh, the man from Mexico who amassed a fortune in the telecommunications business, but at one time it was Warren Buffett. The second richest man in the world gives the first richest man in the world the vast majority of his wealth. Can you imagine having so much money that you could not conceivably spend it if you live not just one lifetime, not even two lifetimes. Imagine you could live 20 lifetimes spending a million dollars a day every day, day after day for 20 lifetimes in a row and that's when you start to get into the Bill Gates money area. But what does it matter if you lose your soul? Charlemagne who is Arguably the first emperor of the Holy Roman Empire unites the kingdom and has unlimited access to wealth. He dies and on his throne he is seated. A Bible is on his lap and it's turned to Matthew chapter 17 verse 26. His bony finger pointing at this passage. Those who have saved nothing in God will have gained nothing in God. So what does all of this mean? It means that the choices that we make right now are going to last forever. And that's the meaning in verse 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. Because you see, you read the text and you think, walk away from yourself Pick up the instrument of your death. Follow Jesus in the direction that he's going. But that 
direction is going to eventually be in heaven with him forever. In Psalm 62, 12, it says, he will reward each according to his works. Psalm 62, 12, the steadfast love belongs to you, O Lord, for you will repay to all according to their work. The judgment is positive and welcome for the son of man will come in the glory of his father and with his angels and he will reward each. Just like he promises you. The promise extends to the reward. And then he says, assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in the kingdom. Bible teachers suggest that this is a reference to the sneak peek of the future kingdom, which is going to be provided in the very next chapter in the opening verse at the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are going to witness a supernatural event where Jesus is transfigured. He is going to be speaking to a glorified Moses and a glorified Elijah. Elijah, it might be speaking about a future resurrection and ascension. They're going to witness Jesus' resurrection. They're going to see a resurrected Savior. They're going to literally watch him ascend to heaven. It may mean the presence of the Holy Spirit in Pentecost during the time of Acts chapter 2. Some have seen in this a vision, if you will, in the book of Revelation with John the Apostle. Whatever it means... It can't mean that one of the disciples will live forever. I don't see that in the text. All of the disciples have died. Jesus seems to be making the point that they're not going to have to wait for another Messiah and another promise. But turning aside from self is no easy task. We have to unlearn everything that we were taught. And then we have to embrace something way bigger than ourself if we're going to deny ourselves. But those are the options. Deny yourself, live for yourself. Take up your cross, ignore the cross. Follow Jesus, follow this world or self or Satan. Lose your life for his sake. Or save your life for your own sake. Keep your soul. Lose your soul. Reminds me of what the president said, remember? He said, if you like your doctor, you could keep your doctor. And then when the Muslim Islamic states started finding Christians and killing them, he said, if you like your head, you can keep your head. I know. That's, it sounded way better when I was thinking it to myself. <laughs> you can share his reward or you can lose his reward. Most people won't do this. They won't deny themselves. They won't pick up their cross. They won't follow Jesus. They won't lose their life for his sake. They'll walk into a future content 
to have instead of give away. I wish I could say to you that turning from self is a simple task that only happens one time and you never, ever, ever have to look back, but that wouldn't be true because that's why Luke's gospel says, pick up your cross daily. Every single morning you're going to have to wake up and make the decision to deny yourself. Remember what deny yourself means. Walk away from you so that you can embrace him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do just slightly, Lord, we begin to understand why so many people desire a crossless Christianity because there's no pain, there's no suffering, there's no sacrifice. And yet, Lord, again, we begin to understand that you ask your son to deny himself, to take up the cross willingly, voluntarily. And that Jesus asks us simply what you asked him. And so, Heavenly Father, again, with courage and resolve that, Lord, we would willingly embrace you, lovingly make the decision that we would desire in our heart to do exactly that. To deny ourselves, To take up our cross. And to follow Jesus into the future that will, in the end, result in joy, glorification, hope, grace, forgiveness, mercy and abundant life and so we commit these things to you we pray these things in Jesus name amen let's stand